0: I was running a, a, a Jewish spiritual retreat center called Allah Chaim, uh, that was, uh, whose purpose was uh, to really introduce a wide range of spiritual practices uh, uh, that exist in the Jewish tradition. And in addition, uh, was, uh, part of its work was to sort of be a research and development arm to uh, bring in uh, spiritual wisdom from wherever it existed. Uh, and integrated into Jewish practice, and that was that whole approach was uh, was an approach I learned from my main Jewish teacher, Rabbi and Shachter Shalomi. And so I uh, worked with him for lots of years. I started this retreat center to showcase that kind of work. Uh, and one of the people he told me I should invite to start talking about uh, a spiritual practice that needed to be fully incorporated into Jewish life was that I should invite Sylvia Borstein. So, uh, so she came and she taught a course called uh, Torah and Dharma at the retreat center with the Rabbi Miles Crassen, who uh, had a very serious uh, Jewish um, mystical background and had practiced meditation as well. Actually, actually, before he learned, before he got serious about Judaism, he had a serious meditation practice. So the two of them uh, did a course together I think in 1993, and then the uh, uh, the next year, uh, with the two of them and me again doing the music, uh, we led a we led what was probably the first Jewish meditation retreat in the history of the world. I mean, there would never been a meditation retreat solely dedicated, a Jewish retreat solely dedicated to meditation, uh, before, and it was a, it was a silent meditation retreat. There was a little bit of a rebellion because there was no context for doing a silent retreat. There was a rebellion about the silence. Like, uh, and for the first couple of years, we had to, I mean, we still make sure it's in the publicity, but we had to really highlight in the publicity that people were coming to a silent retreat. They, because it was a new experience in the Jewish world. But So now people know when they come on a Jewish meditation retreat that it's probably going to be a silent retreat. and we And we do say that in the publicity still. So... And I heard, uh, so I was helping out, but I, it was the first time I listened to Sylvia uh, basically expound the teachings, a set of teachings about how to uh, pay attention, how to look at the world that uh, I would refer to as mindfulness. She basically was teaching the basic practice of mindfulness meditation uh, and the underpinnings of, of how, what it is, how it works, uh, what, why. And I fell in love with what she was teaching. And I thought, oh, This is what I want to practice. This is what I want to teach. made complete sense to me, what she was teaching. And a couple months later uh, I went and sat on a meditation retreat that she was running just for rabbis. Uh, She and a friend of mine, Sheila Weinberg, got a grant to run a meditation retreat just for rabbis, teach mindfulness meditation to rabbis. So that was the first time I sat for three days in silence and listened to Sylvia teach some more and to Sheila. And um, then I went and did an Eight-day retreat with Sylvia a month later, and uh, since then, this has been at the core of my spiritual practice, the, the, the practice and the teachings I want to share with you over these three days. So um, mindfulness meditation, because uh, a lot of you are new to mindfulness meditation, uh, as well as whatever the integration is going to be with the Jewish part. So, first I want to say that uh, I want to thank uh, True North Insight for inviting me to teach. This is a, a mindfulness meditation organization, which is saying, uh, here, it's worthwhile hearing something about Jewish mindfulness meditation. Uh, so, if you haven't had experience and exposure to so mindfulness meditation, I would like to say that mindfulness meditation is... Uh, a clear awakened, non-judgmental attention uh, to the truth of what's unfolding in the present moment. That's the, pra- that's the practice of mindfulness, clear, unbalanced, non-judgmental, awakened attention to the truth of what's occurring in the present moment of experience. So that's the fundamental nature of, uh, uh, and uh, aim of mindfulness meditation. Now that's the that's the practice that we're going to be working with over the next few days, and we're going to do it uh, as. Um, fortunately, most of you raised your hand that you came because the Jewish cyber and do it using a, a Jewish framework and a Jewish language, and uh, and coming at it from a synthesis of these. Uh, uh, of of uh, wisdom and practice from these two traditions that uh, Sylvia and Sheila and I and a handful of other people have been sort of pioneering and, uh, and offering in the Jewish world again over the last 17, 18 years. And before that there had never been a meditation retreat in a Jewish context that, that I know of. Around the same time David Shoshana Cooper started teaching Jewish uh, meditation retreats Uh, And I've taught a number of retreats with them. A couple of you have sat with them as well, I noticed, on the forum. So we all sort of started doing it at the same time, and we've been working together, uh, creating a forum that we think is uh, powerful. Uh, Since it's being hosted uh, with that topic in mind and and the way it is, uh, I want to just say a few things about that synthesis and then get into the details of how we're going to practice. Hopefully not be overly long-winded tonight, uh, because it's the opening night, and also we want to get to the practice as quickly as we can. So I just want to give you a little bit of a framework for what uh, what we're going to experience. So I wrote it in a couple words just to be a little bit careful with uh, some of the things I wanted to say tonight. So, having said what mindfulness meditation is, uh, I want to want to offer something that I I think is what mindfulness. Has to contribute to the Jewish experience. So I think that mindfulness gives to Judaism an an accessible, transformative technique that that lifts one out of the illusory world of views and opinions created by the conceptualizing nature of the human mind. And I'm gonna I'm gonna come back to all these terms so I don't have to memorize anything I'm saying. I'll say it over and over. So mindfulness gives to Judaism an accessible, transformative technique that lifts one out of the illusory world of views and opinions created by the conceptualizing nature of the human mind. So our minds are generally caught up in thinking, 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 and we think with words and concepts and language. Uh, And by lifting us out of that, so mindfulness allows direct mystical experience of the oneness of being, so by lifting us out of the conceptualizing nature of mind, we get a direct mystical experience of the oneness of being, and that results in wisdom, compassion, and kindness. And uh, we, could, we could I could stop there. Like if, if you if you uh, I hope you don't uh, uh, finish this evening's practice without recognizing that. The point is wisdom and compassion and kindness. If you you can forget about Judaism, you can forget about Buddhism, you can forget about everything else that we're going to say. But the point is that out of the practice, we should get wiser and more compassionate and act more kindly in the world. So that's not uh, that's not denominational language. That doesn't belong to this group or to that group. That's that's what we need to do as human beings. So. If i uh, I'm going to give some of the frills that are you know added onto to that, but that's the point so I don't want anybody to lose that point. Uh, we're just trying to figure out what's going on, see more clearly, let, allow it to open our hearts and act better in the world, act with more kindness. That's why we're doing this practice now I would say that that's the point of Judaism. I would say that should be the point of every spiritual practice uh, so. Um, but what mindfulness uh, offers to Judaism is, a, I think, in my, in my experience, what mindfulness, the practice of mindfulness offers to Judaism is the opportunity to, to fulfill the Jewish vision. So there is a Jewish vision, uh, and mindfulness is an incredibly power, powerful tool to actually allow that vision to manifest and not just be a vision. Now, when I talk about the, the Jewish vision... So, I do want to right away say, no, there's there's not one Buddhism, there's not one Judaism, so I'm now going to give you my version of uh, contemporary mystical Judaism. And uh, and there are various approaches to Judaism, uh, and this is one of them. So, again, since uh, you came for, here for, a, as you said, for a Jewish piece, I want you to know what kind of Judaism I'm presenting, because there's not just one kind of Judaism. So, uh, I'm presenting a contemporary expression of, a new, of of the evolving Jewish tradition. And not everybody who's Jewish sees Judaism in that way. But I see it as an evolving, the evolving Jewish tradition and this is a contemporary expression of it. Having said that, the, the form of Judaism I'm interested in uh, has this as its vision. This is the Jewish vision. The Jewish vision, it's not just unique to me, but it's just, uh, the Jewish vision is that It is the task of human beings to recognize the sacred nature of being. So, The Jewish vision I'm working with is the task of human beings to recognize the sacred nature of being and to act accordingly so. And in doing so, to rectify the alienation that occurred as a result of the origin of conceptual thinking, which I'm going to refer to as the expulsion from the garden. I'm going to talk about the story of the Garden of Eden, which a lot of you have heard the simple part of it, that at one point Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, they got kicked out of the Garden of Eden. I'm calling that the expulsion from the garden. And what I'm suggesting is, and I'll speak more about it in depth, is that the expulsion from the garden can be seen as as uh, the alienation that occurred as the result of the origin of conceptual thinking. So human beings, a homo sapiens, didn't always walk around on this planet Thinking the way we do for about a hundred thousand years, whenever after the genetic change happened and that species came into being, uh, hundred thousand years beings that looked like us walked around and they didn't. They didn't think like us. They did not have language. They didn't have concepts. Uh, at least not the way we think of them. Uh, we don't know what kind of. You know, we sort of superimpose whether other beings on this planet even now have think conceptually. I think there are non-human beings that have some degree of conceptual thinking, but not with words and language exactly the way we do it. But So there is probably some abstract thinking that happens, but I'm talking about what happened when we started thinking the way we think with language and concepts and ideas. And uh, that's only about 30,000 years ago. So for 100,000 years, beings like us did not do that. Uh, and it's a little hard to think about what that's like, but part of the practice we're going to be doing is giving you direct experience to, to knowing moment by moment what it's like not to be totally wrapped up in, in conceptual thinking. And, uh, and so I'll give a little bit of a talk later on in the retreat about, about this vision, this particular idea of the expulsion from the garden and how central it is to what the Jewish mystics were doing. So, and my version of contemporary, the contemporary expression of Judaism that I'm offering is, is an outgrowth of the Jewish mystical tradition, which is a subset of, of Jewish thinking. And I think that uh, mindfulness meditation, in my experience, is the most direct, accessible, uh, simplest, cleanest path to have the experience of uh moving outside of conceptual thinking and healing some of the great rifts that were caused by that. And I think that's at the core of what uh, the Jewish mystics were trying to do. But just a uh, couple more things to add to that. So, uh, because there is, a, there is a two-way street that I think is really powerful and uh, working for me and because uh, I think Judaism has something to add in the mix with mindfulness. So I think Judaism adds uh, to the in a blend with mindfulness practice, an explicit recognition of the divine presence. Even that language, the Buddha chose not to speak about uh, divinity, God, uh, very much. I mean, he said it's one that he didn't say there was no God. That God is one of the great imponderables. So don't think about it; it just vexes you. <laughs> if you spend time thinking about God, you just get unhappy. And, uh, but, uh, but. Contemporary Judaism is talking about a completely different understanding and meaning. Uh, so I think the Buddha was saying this: this concept, you know, don't spend time thinking about this concept. But the concept has changed a lot. In any case, there is an explicit use of divine language. I'm going to talk about it a lot. You see, I already passed out uh, uh, something that's going to work with uh, Ju- Judaism's version of of uh, of God. I'll just be a contemporary from a contemporary point of view. So Judaism is adding an explicit recognition of the divine presence that is unfolding in each moment of being. and also adds a comprehensive set of practices which can be used. I want to underline can. I don't think it always is, maybe most of the time it's not, but uh, it offers a set of pra- comprehensive set of practices which can be used to remember to be mindful in the whole of daily life family life, relationships, work, relation to the world. So there's that potential to really use Judaism as a, as a system to remember to be mindful uh, at all times, in every aspect of life. And in that sense, Judaism emphasizes treating the physical world as well as the sense of uh, the self that's uh, occupying this body, the sense of the self, the physical world, all of that's a manifestation of the divine. And uh, in my reading of the tradition, of the Jewish tradition and the Jewish mystical tradition, uh, I see that it seems to me that the fundamental Jewish mystical practice was, uh, uh, was to break the stranglehold that words have on us by essentially deconstructing language. If you look at the practices of Jewish mystics, Essentially, they deconstructed language, and in so doing, they broke the hole that language has over the human mind to see things in a narrow, particular way. And mindfulness does the same thing, but uh, I think that was the fundamental Jewish mystical practice, uh, and I'll make reference to it over the two and a half days. And by doing, in doing so, uh, by breaking that hole, it can. Again, it's only a possibility; it doesn't automatically happen, but it can take us to a so, so Judaism, Jewish mystical practice, breaking down our relation, breaking a deconstructing language can take us to the same place that mindfulness practice takes us. And that's a place of witnessing reality from outside the normal thinking process, which is generally filled with views and opinions. So Jewish mystical practice can take one there and so does mindfulness practice. They go, They take one to the same place outside of that preconceived notions about reality. So, <clears throat> when I first started working with Reb Zalman, so Reb Zalman introduced me to the teachings of Jewish mysticism way before I knew anything about mindfulness meditation. Uh, seven or eight years before I knew anything about mindfulness meditation. but uh, And uh, he was a really important... Uh, uh, thinker transformer in, in the Jewish world and of this generation I think he's arguably one of the most important Jewish leaders there's been who transformed how Judaism is being practiced and seen and who's had his influences really across the board even people don't know him but uh, in any case I met him uh, and, and, I, and I decided to go to rabbinical school because I wanted to hang out with him he was teaching in uh, Philadelphia and Uh, so I went there I started working with him I was lucky enough to get a job running the organization he had created and so I used to travel with him and the first year or so I was traveling with him he used to always tell this story which I liked but I didn't get it in some ways I mean I sort of knew what he was saying but uh, and the story was uh, he said one day he had an eight year old daughter at the time Shalvi and uh, he said you know one day Shalvi his daughter came down to him and said to him Abba Means father in Hebrew. Said, Abba, "Abba, you know how when you're asleep, you know, you have, and you have a dream, it seems so real, you know, and then you wake up and you realize it was just a dream." And she said, "When you're awake, could you wake up more and realize that this is just a dream?" And that that was that was the, that was the whole story. He didn't really explain why he was saying it, and people would chuckle and and they'd like the story. I sort of like the story, but. Uh, but it wasn't until I learned this practice of mindfulness meditation that I realized, oh yeah, that, yes. What what we think of as reality is not reality. Uh, and you can wake up more. Uh, it is possible to wake up and see things. Uh, and the reality we're living in is not, sort of like a dream in that way. Yeah. So, and... Uh, the first time i met zalman uh he so as i said he introduced me some of the concept of jewish mysticism and uh i was living in portland oregon he came out to portland uh to lead a a shabbat weekend it was a friday night to sunday so we have an extra day Uh, and i'd heard a few of his teachings before and the group i was a part of brought him out to to teach That was the first time i met him in person and so he, he did some really interesting practices he really opened up the world of prayer prayer had no meaning for me up until then I was interested in Jewish life already but the prayer seemed pretty stale and he taught us how to pray but then so then on a the Saturday afternoon I was we had a whole day of working with him and hearing him explain certain things then on Saturday afternoon he he went around the group he said what so what are your biggest questions about life about God and, you know, ask anything you want to ask and he took he took ten questions in a row without saying anything. So this person asked and that person. So he took ten questions and then he proceeded to answer all ten questions with one answer. Uh, it was completely clear. I, mean, I, I was just blown away that he could remember all ten questions. It's just his memory was pretty impressive. But, but he gave one, He just gave one coherent discourse that answered all ten questions. It was really clear in the, in the discourse how all of those ten questions were. And he didn't know what the questions were going to be at a time. And uh, so I'm going to share some of the secret of that tonight Cause, uh, because he had a methodology that he was using, uh, but he basically and, and it's a Jewish version of a unified field theory. There's sort of a single explanation that explains everything, and you have it on that piece of paper. And the, the single explanation is uh, you can explain everything from a Jewish mystical explanation of what God is. so to to speak. So you have on that piece of paper, uh, there's four Hebrew letters. So probably you can, even if you don't know Hebrew, they're the only letters on there that you wouldn't recognize, whether you know Hebrew or not. So there's four dark letters in big there. And they're written, uh, I have the name of the letter next to it and the consonant, the sound of the consonant makes. So those four letters are the Yud, the He, the Vav, and the He. And on, on the piece of paper you have, they're written from top to bottom. And you can make the association. So, those four letters are letters that traditionally you would call uh, the most sacred name for God. It's, it's God's name in, in the Jewish tradition, and, you'd, and arguably you'd say it's the most sacred name for God. So... The first thing you have to do to work with the practice I'm going to share with you, and this is what Zauman introduced, although he didn't quite say it this way. He didn't say that this was the answer he was giving. He just gave the answer. But uh, the first thing you have to do is let go of the idea that that's a name. So I'm calling it a name of God. But... uh, But... It's silly to think that God has a name. First of all, it's, what is God, anyways? But then to think that God has a name—it's it's, it's quite silly. If you think about it, it's just any t- any time reflecting on it. Uh, and so, with the Jew and the Jewish mystics recognize that, and they said, "This is not a name. This is just a this is a a code for something much bigger than that." Uh, so the first thing you have to—and that's what I was saying—so Jewish mystics are deconstructing language. So what the Jewish mystics said, um, one thing they said is that uh, there's not really a name, but because there's four things there, what it's trying to point at is a, is a fourfold reality, there's uh, to, to the a fourfold nature to reality. And even that's just a metaphor. Uh, but they, but they started looking at this as a fourfold, four different reality planes, sort of all interwoven. And, and that was how actually, and Zalman sort of gave a discourse on these four reality planes. And in those four reality planes, you could sort of account for how everything is the way it is. Because there's things about each reality plane, too. So he gave a discourse. Uh, I mean, I learned this later, what the structure was, that was basically uh, explicating this, these four letters uh, as being more than a name. So, And what they are, in effect, then, is a they are a, a set of practice instructions that... Uh, point in a direction of seeing clearly the nature of reality. And at the core, the most, one of the most important things that uh, to get out of these four letters uh, is that, um, rather than thinking about this as a name, the, those, the, the four letters do have some meaning. And uh, underneath those, the first letter in Hebrew, the way Hebrew is organized as a language, so the first letter is a, it's a prefix. And uh, most Hebrew words have a three-letter root So this word, these four letters, when you put them together, the first letter, the yud, is a prefix, and the last three letters are the core meaning of this uh, word. And those three letters are the Hebrew for the verb to be, uh, which is a brilliant uh, way of understanding what God is, uh, in the sense that it's really saying that God is, is. That's what, uh, it's it's not a thing. It's the process of being. It's the, in that sense, you could say it's the interbeing of the universe. Uh, it's just the isness of the universe. So, from a Jewish mystical point of view, uh, one wants to have a direct experience of the divine. So, if you pay attention to what is, what's unfolding right now in the present moment, what is, it's all God. Everything is God and nothing but God. From the perspective that what God is is just what is, it's just the, it's the beingness of the universe, the beingness of the very beingness of the universe, and then the rest of the the rest of the discourse just explains uh, a way of saying you know how how is what how does what is manifest, and what is manifests in certain ways. If you pay attention to what is, you see it has this. In some ways, it's like this, and in some ways, it's like this, and in some ways, it's like this. And that's what we're going to sort of work with that as our underpinning uh, for our practice as we go through the practice for the next two days. Um, but all we're really doing is just paying attention to what is, moment by moment. This is the definition of mindfulness. It's just paying attention to the truth of what is clear, balanced, non judgmental, awakened attention to the truth of what is. So the clear part means there's some wisdom. So if you, that's one of these realms of what the so one aspect of the way things are is that clarity is a possibility. Wisdom is a possibility. That part of the nature of being is that being is sentient. That's sort of the awake part. Uh, being sentient. It's awake. It's awake to itself, to everything that is. All, all being is awake. And being is understandable. It's possible that, that, that the wisdom aspect also is an aspect of being. And it can be cultivated uh, because it's there. Because there's a... There's a part of being is the ability of being to understand itself. Uh, and part of what being is is, a, is manifesting as physicality. So like the, the first world that's called uh, I have it here it's called Nefesh and the next to that I have the word embodying. First meaning the, in those four letters from top to bottom is sort of put at the bottom. Quickly you have to let go of the metaphor of top to bottom but you know that's the problems of language you have to write it one way or another. <laughs> So, uh, but so embodying is one aspect of being. Physicality is one aspect of being. Wisdom is one aspect of being. And there's a heart level, uh, feelings and emotions, and the fact that there's an interconnective force of the universe. Is also how being manifests, uh, everything that is wants to get together with everything else that is. You could call it gravity, on the, on the one hand, but, or you could call it love, uh, And depending on whether you're a poet or a scientist, I guess. uh, But nevertheless, love is part of what is. Uh, And uh, you could call it the connective force. So I'm going to unfold all of those things a little bit more, sort of in little bits, so it's not all coming at you as one conceptual thing, because ultimately this is not to present a set of concepts to work with. It's it's just a, a set of pointing out instructions for what to do if you're going to pay attention from moment to moment. So, as you pay attention you should pay attention to your body you should pay attention to your feelings you should pay attention to wisdom manifesting from the Buddhist point of view just say I'm just outlining the four foundations of mindfulness if you know that language Uh, but it's the same it's the same things that are inherent in the Jewish system of oh well being is like this has this and has this and has this and these things inter-are so that's a big piece of what we're going to be doing so just one more teaching piece uh and then we'll get into the mechanics of how we're going to do that here on the retreat. So uh, I want to use one verse from the Torah. So underneath the uh, the wave that you see on that piece, uh, so I guess seven lines up from the bottom, it says uh, there's a Hebrew verse from Deuteronomy: Anochi omed bain yudhe vavhe ba ba'etahi which the literal transma- translation would be, I stood between yud heh vav and you at that time. So this is a verse uh, from Deuteronomy. and um, What I'm going to do is uh, give you an explanation of that verse. It's a teaching that came from the Baal Shem Toh. So the Baal Shem Toh was the founder of Hasidism. Hasid- Hasidism is a Jewish mystical, essentially mystical movement Uh that was started by Israel ben Eliezer who, who uh, uh, which is a name uh, and he's called the Baal Shem Tov the, the master of the good name uh, and he started a Jewish mystical revolution in practice uh, it, was a, it was a radical in some ways a radical departure a new form of practicing uh, that emphasized the spiritual and emphasized uh, the ecstatic and emphasized uh, prayer to some degrees uh more than study, up in, in his generation, and never left completely, but or, and still didn't leave and shouldn't leave. But uh, he, graded, he gave much greater emphasis to prayer than, and, and the, sort of the the pinnacle of Jewish life was was who could learn the best, who was the smartest, and who who knew the most. But uh, but he emphasized prayer as a practice. So, and and it was much more accessible to the masses. The kind of Judaism he was uh, emphasizing, and. Uh, in the mystical tradition, he took words apart and totally re- redid them uh, and what they meant. So, so you have this verse: "I stood between Yehovah and you at that time." But the traditional meaning of this verse: This is Moses. This is, this, these are words that Moses said to all the Jewish people in the Book of Deuteronomy. It's the fifth book of the Bible. Um, contemporary scholars think it was an, a book that was added last it was you know added to the Canon of the five books even at a later time and it's a recapitulation uh, of what happened in the first four books in essence and in any case uh, as you get towards the end of Deuteronomy as you get into Deuteronomy a lot of it is Moses giving his final discourses his final talks to the people before he's going to die he's, he's gonna not go with them over into the promised land and uh, so he goes through a number of times where he's talking to them. Uh, so he was talking to the Jewish people in this verse, and he's reminding them, the verse itself is about reminding them of when they were at Mount Sinai. Uh, when he says, I stood between you and God at that time, the time he's talking about is back at Mount Sinai. Uh, if you know the stories, so the, the Jewish people were slaves in Egypt. They, got, they left Egypt to travel in the wilderness, and, and they get to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai... Uh, everybody its sort of the peak mystical experience, meaning uh, instead of, up until that point, Moses is the one who's interfacing with the divine, according to the metaphor of the story. But even in the terms of the story, in his own terms, uh, when they get to Sinai, everybody has a direct experience of the divine, not just Moses anymore. So in that sense, it's the peak mystical experience, peak experience that happened at a mountain on a peak. Uh, and... Uh, everybody experienced the divine uh, and if you go back and you look at the text you can you can read about what happened but one of the things that's clear is as that experience was unfolding at some point uh, the, the people there panicked they, they couldn't handle this direct experience uh, we could guess what that means we could but 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 even on a literal level they, they couldn't handle it they decide to go away from the mountain and they say to Moses, you go get the rest. <laughs> you, you go talk to God and tell us what God wants us to know. Him. But they didn't want to hear directly. Uh, they didn't want to have the experience directly. And so on the simple level, that's all that all, Moses is just saying. Remember that time? So if here's the mountain and here's the people, Moses is standing <laughs> in the middle because they say, you go talk to God. So he's the intercessor, the intermediary. So that's the simple meaning of the text. So the Baal Shem Tov looked at that verse and said, no, that's not what it means. What it means is, so in Hebrew it says, Anochi Omed, I stood bef- I stood between you and God. So Anochi, Baal Shem tells us, the Anochi, that's the sense of I am. The sense of I am, that's what stands between you and God. The sense of a self, the sense of a separate self, it's straightforward. The sense of a separate self, that's what's between you and experiencing the oneness of the universe, experiencing the divine the sense of a separate self. Now, it's not. he's not saying... I changed how I, ta- I taught this verse for ten years already, but I changed the last couple of years, even how I understand it and how I was teaching it. Because uh, I used to say that uh, it's that sense of a separate self that gets in the way between you and God. That's one way to understand if this is here and that's there and that's there. You could say this is in the way. You could, could say that, but... Uh, but that's, that's actually an editorial. The Baal Shem Tov is just saying, that sense, there's something uh, of a separate self, that sense is between you and God. Uh, but not necessarily, it doesn't mean you should get rid of it. Because if this is here, and this is here, and there's something here, that's the door. And so, actually what I would say is that if you want to have a direct experience of the divine, it's by understanding that what the, what the nature of the self is. So it doesn't—it's not actually it doesn't actually get in the way. It's actually the doorway. Uh, so what we really need to do, and what we're going to do in this practice, is really explore what it means to have a sense of a separate self. Which does, if you have, when you have that sense, it does cut you off from everything else. If you have a sense of a self, if if I'm this, then I'm not that. That's the very nature of conceptual thinking. Uh, the very nature of conceptual thinking, having words and ideas in the mind, concepts. Uh, is binary in nature. its nature. Divi- it's divisive in its nature. In order, in order to have a concept of, of a thing being a thing, you have to have a concept of everything else not being that thing. So to, the very nature of having a concept is to separate the interwoven nature of being. It's, it's not, um, not suggesting we give up concepts. I'm not suggesting we give up thinking. You know, concepts and thinking which result in the sense of a separate self that's the doorway into the bigger thing. But we need some practices that help us not be lost in the views and opinions uh, and the workings of mind, which, as Shalvi said in that, and this was the importance of that story, we think we see reality. We don't see reality. We live in virtual reality created by conceptual thinking. Last thing I'll say about it, and then Janet will come, and then I'll give, then we'll start practicing too. So, uh, so, just one example, or two little examples. So, uh, you know, when you read a book, like, uh, uh, I listen to books on tape sometime, or you read a book, like a whole world gets created, right? You're just reading these words, but inside, there's like, you just move into a whole world. You can, you can see things, you can imagine things, uh, it, it, that's a, beautiful, I and mean, it's a great process. But it's like a whole world gets created. It's just words. All it is black words on a piece of white paper interacting with a mind, and because the mind is conditioned and knows those words and, and and looks at reality, so a whole reality, a whole reality comes out. I notice that uh, we have a really great public radio station in our in the area where I live, and the people who run the station they're like real personalities, and uh, and. Uh, I actually feel quite quite drawn to them. They, besides the shows they put on, they interact with each other. The, they have a, there's a fundraising week four times a year. They raise money. It's like you, t- you tune in. People in the area they tune into the station for the fundraising week. It's, it's they call it the fun drive, uh, and it's great. You, you hear them interacting with each other, and, and they're real personalities. And, I had complete visions of what they all look like. Right? I've never met any of them. But, you know, and So I, I went to an event where they were. You know, and They don't look anything like they look like. Because <laughs> right? you, know, you have a whole... That's what I'm talking about with reality. You have a whole reality map that's just totally based on words and ideas and the mind filling in the blank and making up reality. It's just, a, it's just an internal generated reality map uh, that comes based a lot on words and language. So these are all things that we're going to work with uh, from a Jewish perspective, from a mindfulness perspective. So, I'll say more about how it all unfolds. I'm going to let Janet come up now and tell you about some of the uh, ways that the retreat is structured. But the, the primary practice, there's really one primary practice we're going to be doing this whole time. That's trying to pay attention moment to moment to what's arising now. Oh, now, what's arising? Now, what's arising? Now it's arising. And the primary tool that allows us to pay attention to what's happening right now is we're not going to talk to each other. We're just going to be quiet enough to listen, to pay attention to what's happening now, what's happening now. But there's more to it, so uh, I'll let Janet introduce sort of the, uh, the structure of the retreat and some of the things that facilitate the ability to pay attention moment to moment. And then I'll give you some beginning instructions for tonight. Up. Just press it. button in the center again. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit slash donate.